You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. It was difficult to detect. It changed color. It assumed different forms. It destroyed the value of one of the greatest sources of wealth in the United States. In just a matter of months, it was French. And in certain forms, it was illegal. But how could that be? It was just something that you spread on your toast. Butter is a commodity in the 19th century, all over the world. And in France, Louis Napoleon, who was in charge of France at the time of our Civil War in the 1860s, he is, uh, what's the best way to describe it, the grand stepson of the, or you, you might say nephew, you might say grand stepson of Napoleon himself. But in any case, he's using that name to rule over France. And in the course of doing so, he had armies all over the world, including in Mexico. And he needed to find a cheaper source of food for the army and also for the lower classes in France. Butter was just too expensive. Could you find something he challenged scientists and chemists and industrialists, government contractors? Could you find something that's a butter substitute? And, you know, Even though it's for the army and the lower classes, don't make it taste so bad. And it can't go rotten so quickly. A chemist named Hippolyte Mesmeris came up with a solution. And why not? His emperor asked him and he was offering a prize. He had been watching underfed cows who lost weight. But they're still producing milk. But these are underfed cows who haven't been given fat. How can they be producing butter? And he deduces that fat in the milk must come from fat reserves, which in the body of the cow, within the body of the cow, the tallow, rather than being derived directly from the food. So, and something, if the fat reserves are getting into the mammary glands, then there must be something, you know, and then becoming an emulsion of milk, there must be something making that chemical process happen within the cow. He deduces again that perhaps it's an enzyme, pepsin, that fractionates the fat into a product that can uh, be released from the cow. Now, if that can be done for that, he can make a product called margarine. He heats up tallow. He uses gastric juices to separate the tissue from the fat. Then he crystallizes the fat at a lower temperature and obtains a semi-fluid fraction. It's not very good looking, If you see it, it's kind of like you're skimming off the top liquid part of the fat. And this is going to work against the manufacturers later. And he called it oleomargarine. 
and it became shortened over time to the trade name margarine. Maurice didn't really uh, make money. He did have the patent from it. So he sold the patent to a Dutch company, Jurgens, which is now Unilever Brands. German brands also started producing it, and eventually these companies were selling it to the butter-eating market of the United States. Local industries in America also took up the cause. In 1871, Henry Bradley of Binghamton, New York, received a patent, 110,626, for the creation of margarine that came not from meat, alone at least, but used vegetable oils, cottonseed oil, and animal fats. It looked like butter, but to make it a little bit more look like butter, yellow food coloring was added. Soon, there were over 30 companies manufacturing margarine in the United States, and why not? It was much cheaper than making butter, and for some meat manufacturers, the beef fat component was in surplus anyway. There was only one thing to do for the butter industry. It protested and called for government intervention. And the man who was president at the time was not a, a man in favor of government intervention in many things. So it's going to be a tough case. He was Grover Cleveland. This from Alan Nevin's Grover Cleveland, A Study in Courage. Within a decade, a gigantic traffic in artificial butter had grown up. It was said that oleomargarine could be made for seven or eight cents a pound, that the average value of the 15 million cows in the United States had declined from $40 to $30. And that more than 4 million Americans engaged in the cattle or dairy business and had been injured by this unfair competition. It's, as one writer says, when an idea such as the one implemented by the dairy industry makes its way into common thought, it's hard to remove it even when new ideas are made known. The attack on margarine comes from some very um, kind of fake news reports about how it's made and the con and the condition of the animal fat and things like that. So, a bill passed both houses to tax oleomargarine two cents a pound and to regulate its manufacture and sale. It's a pretty punitive law. Manufacturers must pay $600 license fee, wholesalers $480 a year, uh, grocers had to pay license fees of $48 and $6, $48 for selling colored margarine and 6 for selling uncolored. Colored margarine is taxed at $0.10 cents per pound, uncolored, uncolored margarine at $0.04. Cents. This amount will increase during the year. It seemed like a small matter, but it was a very big matter to Grover Cleveland and he didn't like the idea of regulating the manufacture of a substance like this, and he was generally in favor of free trade. William Price, um, Congressman William Price of Wisconsin, supporting dairy farmers in his state, said, if I could have the kind of legislation that I would want, it would not be a source of revenue, as I would make the tax so high that the operation of the law, meaning the production of margarine, would alter would utterly destroy the manufacture of all counterfeit butter and cheese, as I would destroy the manufacture of counterfeit coin or currency. That's William Price. David Henderson of Iowa, same constituents, he's going to be Speaker of the House one day, compares margarine to the witch's brew in Shakespeare's Macbeth. Not everybody is for it. George Tillman of South Carolina, 
says margarine, margarine, when it is honestly made out of good materials, was actually better than butter. And Representative John Adams of New York offers an amendment to tax chicken incubators in order that the great American hen may be properly protected, because it's the same argument that the dairy farmers are using. Cleveland hesitated over it, Ellen Evans writes, as an improper interference with private enterprise. He signs it with reluctance, but he signs it. One of the things that Cleveland establishes in his first non-consecutive term is a Department of Agriculture. There had been one that was in name only, kind of a bureau, headed by a commissioner, very restricted. In February 1889, he signs a bill presented by Representative Hatch of Missouri and creates the first Department of Agriculture. And in addition to the federal government, states are regulating margarine. By 1898, 26 states have laws regulating margarine under the anti-color laws, which prohibits the manufacture of anything that's yellow-colored margarine. You can sell it if it's uncolored, because margarine, especially oleomargarine, its natural state is going to be whitish. Other states go further. Vermont in 1884, then followed by New Hampshire and South Dakota, pass laws that re- require margarine to be colored, but not yellow, pink so that it can be picked out from butter. You know, if what happened in the federal government seems anti-trade, in 30 states, any kind of artificially colored butter that was yellow would be considered contraband. And from 1886 until 1948 in Canada, margarine was just simply banned, except for during World War I. But this debate about the colorization of the margarine products, you know, forgets that even butter isn't universally covered, particularly the kind of organic butter that was going to be sold in America at this time. Many consumers expected butter to be the same color all year. But the color of butter fluctuates. It's a rich yellow color in early and midsummer. It's pale yellow in autumn. And in winter and autumn, It's pale yellow, but they didn't care about these technicalities. There are a lot of violations of the Oleomargarine Act of 1886. Inspection took time and money. It would be difficult to manage. This is why the focus was all on the color. Um, In 1902, there's even a higher tax levied, a 10-cent tax on artificially colored margarine, and it reduces the tax on the uncolored products to one-fourth a cent. Margarine companies get smart, and to get around the regulation, they sell the margarine along with a packet of yellow food coloring. But it still meant that the consumer had to mix that in, and sometimes they wouldn't do it right, and you'd get kind of like a light and dark yellow or striped kind of uh, margarine. So I had my observation here. Why are we talking about margarine? It's a story of where the government acted, even a reluctant, almost the nearest nation might have come to what one might call a libertarian president, very free trade supporter, was rushed to act on a single product. If politics can be brought to margarine, 
then to some degree these politics over food regulation are somewhat arbitrary. I mean, the ostensible reason for regulation of margarine was public safety and public information, consumers seeing what they're getting. Is that real butter? That's the ostensible reason. But the real reason we know is political representatives taking care of constituents. We have their statements on record. Margarine becomes very popular again during World War II. There's a shortage of butter in the United States. Company receives a patent for a method to place a capsule of yellow dye inside the plastic package. The capsule is broken once you press the outside of the package and then knead the dye into the margarine. It's about five years later, 1955, artificial coloring laws are repealed. Margarine could be sold. Minnesota and Wisconsin still had their laws on the books until 1967. That's in the United States. In Canada, where margarine was virtually banned, the restrictions on margarine and its color are not repealed in Ontario, Canada until 1998 and in Quebec till 2008. Old regulations die hard. In one corner of the House of Representatives, a new member spied the chamber. And when he did, he didn't see people necessarily or politicians. He saw obstacles and tools, friends, enemies. He'd lead that chamber. He knew it. He wasn't going to be satisfied with just being a junior House member from the state of Maine, no matter how popular he was with those in his party at home. And what was the fastest way to rise above this chamber of already very powerful, very well-spoken, very well-known men? He had a plan. And it's kind of interesting. The rivalry between James Blaine and, and Roscoe Conkling is, is interesting. And I think there's an important bit of context that gets mixed in the kind of American high school textbook history that's get told. And I don't want to knock high schools or anything like that. They have a limited amount of time to teach. People should be learning on their own. I'll always say that. Go to libraries, learn more. But the picture of both Conkling and James Blaine that comes out of it is nothing more than two corrupt politicians of the 19th century. There's no doubt that, as was very common at this time, that both men profited from their service, and they were also masters at their game. But it's also true that both men built their reputation and standing up for the Reconstruction and standing up for the rights 
of African-American freedmen who had been recently enfranchised with the vote and protecting them. Here's what one observer in Congress said about Blaine. James Blaine of Maine stood at Thaddeus Stevens' right hand through all the fight through Reconstruction. He did not always agree with the leader, but on the vital issues, gave him powerful support. In his makeup, he had little of the vindictive as man may have and get through public life. He would employ all means to conciliate. But the black codes, these are the laws installed by Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, Georgia. These codes overwhelmed him, as it would overwhelm many other easygoing men from the North. He felt the government had to deal, not with a beaten foe, to which it could be generous, but with an enemy that sought to win by tricky legislation, what it had lost in armed conflict. And on that issue, Stevens himself was hardly more resolved than Blaine. You know, Conklin's the same way fighting for the same things. It doesn't stop them from locking horns. The congressman from Utica, Roscoe Conkling, had been James Blaine's counterpart to the 37th Congress. He hadn't been present in the 38th due to an opposition surge in 1864 preventing Conkling's re-election by 98 votes. Now in the 39th Congress, he was eyeing James G. Blaine, sizing him up and seeing him as a serious potential rival. This according to Continental Liar from the state of Maine by Neil Rold. The two men were very different even physically. Conkling was a Nordic type with a reddish Venetian beard, blue eyes, fair skin, and a handsome head of auburn curls. Blaine was a dark-bearded, olive-complected, and having deep gray eyes that looked brown. Blaine dressed like a New Englander in a black suit, white shirt, black string tie. Conkling, a dandy, wore ice cream trousers and moon-on-the-water vests. A Hercules in frock coat was the description of a writer for the New York Sun, Jose Marti. As you reach 1866, and here Republicans should be busy battling with Andy Johnson over Reconstruction, and they are, but there's plenty of time to fight among themselves. And it first starts January 22nd, 1866. Blaine just sort of drifts into a debate that Conkling's having. And Conkling's preparing a subcommittee report dealing, for voting purposes, for purposes of representation, how do we now count the newly enfranchised African-American voters? Under slavery, each one had been considered three-fifths. Now we have to reapportion things because obviously we're now counting everyone as full people, as was right and should be done. But New England had a problem with how it would be done, with the reapportionment plan that Conkling's group in New York was proposing. So Conkling gets up and says, New England's losing no seats. Blaine gets up to speak and says, these figures are different. I have a different set of figures. We are indeed going to lose. Conkling doesn't like even being challenged. And he says, I desire to answer not so much the argument as the witticism of my friend from Maine. Blaine responds, Oh no, not wit, either perpetrated or intended. It is said that New England is the focus of fanaticism, Conkling says. I thought the gentleman only rose for an explanation, Blaine said. Blaine had the floor. I am going to make a very brief explanation. New England is the place where the man said the sun riz and sought in his backyard, and that we cannot do anything here that militates against New England. I deny that it hits New England, and I deny that this proposition benefits New England. In other words, I support this proposition on account of its own merits. Blaine. 
I am very much obliged to the gentleman for the patronizing care which which he looks after the interests of fanatical New England. Okay, so we think that there's only kind of sarcasm and and snippy responses in the in the modern era, right, in, in, among politicians. And this is nothing. This is just a short exchange, but Conkling sure doesn't like it. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. You get to April of the same year. This is supposed to be a bill just to reorganize some of the military commissions that's just going to get passed through Congress without much discussion. But there's a small item, Section 20, which creates a provost marshal's bureau that would be a very small office. And Conkling moves to remove Section 20. But he says, it creates an unnecessary office for an undeserving public servant. See, he couldn't just keep his comments to himself about the person because this person was James B. Fry. That's the person that they were intending to give this office to. He is the present provost marshal. Here's what uh, Conkling says. My constituents remember and other constituents remember wrongs done to them too great for forgetfulness and almost by belief by the creatures of this bureau and of its head. They turned the business of recruiting and drafting into a paradise of coxcombs and thieves. There has never been in human history a greater mockery and a greater burlesque than the conduct of this bureau. Conkling, furthermore, submits a letter from Ulysses S. Grant, respected general, the head of the army right now, not yet president, who stated, he felt, Grant, there's no more necessity for provost marshal general. Conkling isn't concerned about this particular general. He's concerned that this general, who's in charge of this very important recruitment brought in money, who's in charge of this patronage, wasn't on his side of the political machines. Blaine senses an opening because in the process of taking care of a little political feud that the congressman wants, he's attacking a general of the United States Army. And in doing so, he's in a weakened position. The Army's not happy with the attack on General Fry. Several other congressmen rise to his defense. And then James G. Blaine gets involved. He had been busy in the diplomatic gallery talking to a friend. And then he hears the gist of what Conklin's saying. Oh, yes. He's armed. He has a letter, and he rises up. I wish to say why the committee reported the section of the bill in which the gentleman from New York shows so much feeling. And he pulls out a letter also from Ulysses S. Grant. 
I think the officer best suited for that position to deal with the combined office to deal with desertions and recruiting is General Fry, and would recommend that the whole subject of recruiting be put in his hands and all officers on recruiting duty be directly reported to him. But it wasn't enough. Blaine wanted to make sure that he not only stung Conkling through Grant's letter, but that he did more. Blaine said, The House of Representatives of the United States couldn't care less about the quarrels of the gentleman from New York with this General Fry. In which quarrels it is generally understood the gentleman came out second best at the War Department. She's talking about Conkling. Conkling rises. Mr. Speaker, if General Fry is reduced to depending on the gentleman from Maine for vindication, he is to be commiserated, certainly. If I have fallen to the necessity of taking lessons from that gentleman in the rules of propriety and a right or wrong, God help me. Here's how uh, Rode writes the rest of it. The gloves were off. For the rest of the day, these two highly articulate Republicans went at each other as if they were the most ferocious of partisan enemies, fighting over issues of monumental import. Conkling charged that the statement made by the gentleman from Maine which regard to myself personally, and my quarrels with General Fry and their results is false. In the process of this back and forth, Conkling ends up saying something like, what the gentleman from Maine is saying is false, and I will be happy to prove his arguments false here or elsewhere. In responding, Blaine says, Conkling had threatened him with a duel. What was Conkling really saying? I don't know. Just basically, uh, your charges are false. I could have meant in the media. Who knows? Blaine seizes upon it because it's utilizing some language that is sometimes used in duels. And we're talking about a debate in 1866. We're a little bit, not totally, but a little bit past the dueling era. It's not so good. Alleging that Southerners in Congress before the Civil War had used end elsewhere to mean a duel, Blaine called Conkling's remark a cheap swagger. Later, Conkling goes and, and is sure that the congressional record is changed so that his words are, instead of saying elsewhere, he says at all times and places. Blaine then holds up the Globe Report, which was that era's congressional record, accuses Conkling of having his own words altered because he knew what Blaine had said was right. He changed the phrase about meeting me here and elsewhere to the very mild phrase at all times and places. Conkling attacks Blaine. His marks are frivolously impertinent and also incorrect, and his imputation of dual challenging is a cheap way of clawing off. Then, Blaine reads a letter from Provost Marshal General Fry. Fry's not a member of the House. He can't speak for himself during this debate. But now, through this letter into the record, Fry says that he and Conkling quarreled over appointments in the congressman's district. He removed several of Conkling's favorites as Provost Marshals, and Conkling's attempt to have the War Department overruled him had failed. Furthermore, the general says... Conkling violated the letter or spirit of the U.S. Constitution by receiving his pay as congressman and accepting 3000 for acting as a judge advocate. He was as zealous in preventing prosecutions at Utica as he was in making them at Elmira, and 
the main ground of difficulty between Mr. Conkling and myself has been that I wanted exposure at both places, where he wanted concealment at one. This is what Rode writes, suddenly the tables are turned. Conkling doesn't get in any trouble for this allegation, but most people believe Blaine is winning. Conkling says, Mr. Speaker, if the member from Maine had the least idea how profoundly indifferent I am to his opinion on the subject, which he has been discussing, I think he would hardly take the trouble to rise here and express his opinion. Blaine says, as to the gentleman's cruel sarcasm, I hope he will not be too severe. The contempt of that large-minded gentleman is so witting, his hearty disdain. And this is where Blaine makes his final compelling assault. His grand eloquent cell, his magic, supereminent, overpowering, turkey gobbler strut, has been so crushing to myself and all the members of this house that I know it was an act of the greatest temerity for me to venture upon a controversy with him. Blaine is not afraid in the least. Turkey gobbler strut. He has done the ambitious man's thing found the biggest man in the room, and punched him squarely in the nose. And of course, since we are past the Civil War and Republicans are controlling the House now, there is no, there's still some dueling going on, but it's not something that's seen as good. So he even uses that. And don't you try to duel me, (laughs) kind of thing. What's the end result? One of the greatest rivalries of the 19th century in American politics Conkling will never speak to Blaine directly again. The two will be involved in at least two significant presidential conflicts. You could say that when Blaine does not get the nomination in 1876, 10 years after this argument, of course, it's partially the result of Conkling, who probably would have been opposing him anyway, though. They then battle again in 1880. And by 1884, when James Blaine does get the nomination, people go to Conkling and ask, is he going to uh, speak for Blaine? And Conkling responds to the reporters, gentlemen, I don't want to be associated with criminal defense. He eventually is asked by the party and makes a few speeches for the Republican Party, but never for Blaine. Blaine loses Utica and that area around where Conkling lives. Surprise, surprise, normally a Republican area. And loses the state of New York, the election, and the presidency. But certainly this beginning argument is what uh, fuels really the politics, the presidential politics of, uh, of the later 19th century. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, 
And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Eric C. Backus writes on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group. So I've been mulling this over and perhaps a question on the most influential Secretary of State and why. Jefferson could certainly be in the running as the first and the precedence he set. Seward has to be in the running given the Civil War shuttle diplomacy to keep Europe from recognizing the Confederate States, and for the Alaska Purchase. Lodge certainly has some heft, um, but how about Kissinger, Schultz, and of course, there's Marshall who looms large. Your take on this might be interesting. Um, thanks, Eric. Uh, appreciate the question. Remember, we have that website, the Facebook group, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group. Um, you got to remember, some of these people are getting help, right? So even Seward, and he's got to be on the list, yes, he has Charles Francis Adams in the court of St. James, who was really helping to manage the English effort well, which was so important for the Union to avoid. You know, a lot of people talk about intervention as if they were going to, the England was going to support the Confederacy. It's not the only option they had. They also had intervention in terms of as a humanitarian effort, just stopping the war, which in effect would be more advantageous for the Confederates than the Union. Jefferson is the first in the Secretary of State's office, but can you say that he's the best? He doesn't accomplish much. He gets overruled on some of his wants. He is consulted by Washington, and that, in my estimation, moves him up. He is first and sets some precedents. He does leave the job early. So there's a lot there. And then you have, uh, yeah, you have a few, um, like technicalities, like Kissinger is, uh, good, but he does some of his best work, depending on how you view things. Well, he's National Security Advisor, and Rogers takes some of the credit, but I wouldn't put Rogers uh, on the list at all. Stentanius, we talked about him. Very important towards the creation of a United Nations. Baker, uh, Fish, Hay, Blaine. So there's a lot um, to talk about there. I think you also have to talk about Dean Acheson for crafting uh, NATO, for crafting the American response to the Iron Curtain. Uh, and then, conversely, George Schultz for being, being essential in opening up um, Ronald Reagan, particularly, you know, really in his first term and his second term, to being open to ending that Cold War. James Baker for officiating over that end of the Cold War. These people all, you know, have a role. John Marshall, as you say, bringing an end to the quasi-war with France, settling disputes with Spain, Britain, the Barbary states during his term. Got to put him up there. George Marshall, 
He's got his name on a plan that's successful. And although he's had a short time and towards the end, he wasn't really doing the work anymore because of his age and condition. But he certainly has got to be up there. Madison serves a long time under Jefferson, whether all of his policies were good or not. So, you know, Blaine, although not as successful as he wanted to be, does start the first U.S. Latin American conference, sort of getting the U.S. in the role as being a significant leader, at least in this hemisphere. Um, Daniel Webster settling the border, northern border, between the U.S. and Canada, but it would have been Britain at that time, establishing Maine, and also on the western Canadian border, Cordell Hull presiding over state during World War II. James Burns, crucial to uh, probably, again, a person doing his best work before he becomes Secretary of State as an undersecretary, uh, providing a lot of help to Harry Truman and um, doing some of the work. Getting into some disagreements later, though, with Truman, which might have sullied his, where you can put him. Frank Kellogg, for although it didn't work, an honorable attempt to get nations together and ban war. Um, where do you put some of these people? I don't put them at all, you know, at the top. And so there's a lot to a Secretary of State position. I think that in viewing a Secretary of State, you have to uh, look at what they did individually as opposed to were they someone where the president did most of the work. Harrison had to end up doing some of Blaine's work because of his condition. You know, how much was Hull in control of foreign policy versus Franklin Roosevelt? Root during Theodore Roosevelt's term. You know, I put Rusk there near the bottom. It's uh, Dean Rusk. It's hard to rate him too high because he was constantly serving for presidents that he didn't always agree with their policy. And he was subservient to the presidents. I agree, though. I think number one is Seward because it was so crucial to the country, the survival of the country that that foreign policy succeeded and he worked well and also gets bonus points for being kind of a trusted advisor that Lincoln would go to. Maybe he had good subordinates. John Quincy Adam, very important negotiations with Spain during his time as Secretary of State serves a long time. So my list goes something like this. William Seward, John Quincy Adams, Dean Acheson, George Schultz, John Marshall, George Marshall, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, Henry Kissinger, James Blaine, James Monroe, James Baker, Daniel Webster, Cordell Hull, James Burns, John Hay, Edward Stettenius, Frank Kellogg, Robert Lansing, Dean Rusk, Richard Olney, Thomas Bayard, Charles Evan Hughes, Hamilton Fish, and others too numerous to mention. That's what my list. Look, very subjective ranking, and the more you go down, we're giving people points for doing just one thing. You know, we're, we're serving in an administration where there's some successful events. Thanks for your question, Eric. Appreciate it. I want to thank you for listening. The website's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you like the program, tell someone about it. Think of ways you can spread the word. A lot of the times we get listeners, it's from other listeners. And, uh, you know, not everybody's interested in politics and history, so you don't have to force it on anyone. Uh, and here's a new thing. If you have a podcast of your own, please mention us on it. Uh, you can also go to the Facebook site, 
My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site or contact me at, at myhist on Twitter and mention your podcast. We'll be sure to uh, to give it a mention in that venue or feel free to post a note about your podcast yourself. I am doing this for um, some time now. And of course, I support everyone else who's doing it. It's a very fun thing to engage in. And, um, you know, I don't know. Everyone should have a podcast. We're getting there anyway, right? We're getting pretty close. Thanks for listening.